Uh, so just indulge me for a second. Could everybody stand up for me? Okay. If you are able, stand up. All right. This is kind of a reverse survey. Uh, if you have regularly attended church, like no big gaps, if you have regularly attended church for less than seven years, please sit down. If you have regularly attended church for less than 15 years, please sit down. Okay, you can all sit down there. All right, that's okay. This is great. We're here this morning. That's the good part. Uh, if you regularly attended church for less than 20 years, please sit down. Less than 30 years, please sit down. Less than 40 years, please sit down. Less than 50 years. Less than 60 years. We have a winner, Jim. It's all right. Okay, Jim. Uh, can someone, Jim, would you mind coming up here for just one second? This is for, I'm going to give you two copies of Rediscover Church. Obviously, you don't need to rediscover church. But uh, who are who are some of the first people to sit down? Can you raise your hands? Okay. Uh, so Sharon, raise your hands one more time. Sharon, take a look. All right. Your assignment, if you choose to accept it, is to have, hand that other book to one of those people. And if you even want extra credit, to read that book with those people. Uh, and you can even meet up together and read it aloud together. The chapters are short enough. Uh, so there you go. Um, now, I did that survey, <coughs> survey because attending a church has become just a, a staple of many of our lives for a long time. Now, if you've come to church for years, I wonder, could you explain to somebody new what a church is? Could you explain to somebody new what a church does? Now, it's good when church becomes part of our routine, but after a while, we can take those basic questions for granted. Now, whether you're a regular churchgoer or you're still fresh or even if you're still kind of skeptical of the church, I want you to consider that the local church is part of God's big plan to reconcile the world to himself through his son. It's part of God's big plan. We can go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 1. God creates Adam and he immediately gives Adam a job to do. Genesis 1.28, he tells Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God charges Adam to rule and to expand the place where God is specially present. And then the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam another job. He charges Adam to maintain and protect the place where God is specially present. And then the next chapter doesn't take long, Adam fails. He fails to rule and expand. He fails to maintain and protect. See, the serpent enters the place where God is specially present. Adam rebels against God, and Eden is lost. But God has a plan to restore what was lost. To bring, back, to bring people back to closeness with him. And so God gives these same jobs of ruling, expanding, maintaining, and protecting. He gives these same jobs to Abraham, and then to Israel, and 
and to David. Each one of these figures is like a new Adam. Yet each one of these figures, like Adam, fails. Then Jesus arrives. And Jesus succeeds where everybody else failed. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus pays the penalty for our rebellion. And now he rules over heaven and earth. And what's remarkable about, about this is not only that we are forgiven by Jesus, but we are united to Jesus. Followers of Jesus are called many things. Among them, they are called Jesus' body. So the book of Romans and Corinthians says that Jesus is the new and better Adam. But it's like Jesus has made his own people a bunch of new Adams. Sort of what we've studied the last couple of weeks. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus calls his church to affirm true believers in him, like he affirmed Peter. In Matthew 18, Jesus calls his church to remove that affirmation from false believers. And when Jesus' church does this, his church maintains and protects the place where God is specially present. One of those jobs that Adam was charged to do. Today in Matthew 28, we see Jesus giving his church a similar charge that God gave Adam in Genesis 2. Be fruitful and multiply, in Genesis 1 that is. Jesus tells his church to expand the boundaries where he, rule, where he is ruling by making more disciples who follow him. So what is a local church? Who are we? What are we doing? Call us a preview of coming attractions. Call us an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We protect and maintain the place where the king rules. We seek to expand his life-giving rule by making more disciples of him. And we do this all in anticipation that one day the king will return and establish his kingdom fully on earth. That Jesus will fulfill God's big plan to fill the whole earth with his glory, to restore what was lost, to bring back closeness to him. Now, brother and sister, next time you think church is boring, find your place and find our place in the bigger story. So with some biblical theology under our belt, let's dive into Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Here we'll focus on Jesus' charge to expand the borders. And so, so far in our church, in our series on the church, uh, we first saw the what and the who of the church. And then last week we saw the shape of the church. And today we see the mission of the church. So follow along with me in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You'll find it on page 835. Living the Bible to God. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. You might summarize the main point of this passage like this. Since Jesus has all authority, he sends his disciples to make disciples of all nations and promises his presence with them for all the days. We'll break down the different parts of that statement for most of our time, but as we're doing that, we want to have an eye for what this means about what the church is and what the church is called to do. So let's just dive in. First point, all authority. 
Now, you might have noticed that this word all repeats several times in, these, in just a short amount of time, in these uh, couple of verses. And the first occasion of the word all is part of a huge claim from Jesus. All authority has been on heaven and earth has been given to me. And we look at that claim and compare it to other things that Jesus has said. On the one hand, that the claim isn't completely unique. There are other places that talk about Jesus having authority. Even for himself, he claimed to have authority. Even in the book of Matthew, chapter, chapter 7, verse 29, Jesus is described as one who taught with an authority, unlike the teachers of the day. Chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus displays his authority to forgive sin. Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus displays his authority over demons and darkness. Chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus claims to have a unique authority to reveal who the Father truly is. So it's not that Jesus didn't have authority before Matthew 28, verse 18. This claim isn't entirely unique. However, this claim does come at a unique time. This is shortly after Jesus died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again from the dead three days later. God the Father is the implied subject of verse 18. The Father is the one who gives Jesus universal authority. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicates his son who suffered and was humiliated. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for the sin of all those who would trust in him. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was proof that the Father rules the universe through his Son. Now, we look at a claim like Matthew 28, 18, and there are some claims that are big, but maybe they're just for show. We might be able to shrug them off pretty easily. I think of a claim that happened before his match uh, with uh, world champion Sonny Liston. This claim comes from Muhammad Ali. He said famously, I am the greatest. Now a claim like that gets your attention. A claim like that might even get you to tune in and watch the boxing match. But it doesn't get you much beyond that. Now on the other hand, there are claims that demand a response. I think of the book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. He makes this huge golden image, and he claims that this image is worth adoration and worth uh, worship. So all people in his kingdom must gather together and bow before this golden statue. A claim like that, well, that demands a response. So you probably know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reject this claim. They refuse to respond with worship, and Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fiery furnace. So here we have Matthew 28, verse 18. Pretty big claim. This is a claim that demands a response. We can't so easily shrug it off. Now, if you're here and you're not quite sure what to think about Jesus, I wonder how will you respond to the claim of this verse? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that Jesus' claims are too big to respond to him and think about him just as a, a polite person or a respectful teacher. C.S. Lewis says you have to conclude, given how big Jesus' claims are, you have to conclude either that Jesus is a liar, that he's a lunatic, or that he is who he says he is. He's Lord. 
Now, a claim like verse 18 sounds like it comes from a crazy guy who stands on the corner of a public square in downtown. And just to think about it, even the people who first heard claims like this thought Jesus was crazy. His own family, the respected teachers of the day, most Jewish people would grow up with thinking that a claim with equality with God, that's a huge hurdle. But Jesus' disciples here, they conclude that he's truthful, not a liar. They conclude that he is sane, not a lunatic. They conclude he is who he says he is. He is ordered. Friend, Jesus claims to have all authority in heaven and on earth. And so really, you've you got to do something with that. And you only have pretty much two options. You can either trust and follow him, or you can reject and rebel against him. No middle ground. Now, if you are sure what you think about Jesus, if you do claim to trust and follow him as Lord, I'll ask you the same question. What are you going to do with that claim? What will you do with it? Will you take confidence from that claim? I mean, Jesus makes this claim and he tells his disciples this right before he's sending them out into a dark and dangerous world. I think Jesus' tender shepherd-like heart is on display here yet again. He sends his disciples into a world where he knows they will be met with other worldly authorities and rulers who will seek to stop them out, who will seek to silence the gospel that they're sent out to proclaim. And so Jesus tells them this to give them confidence that whether all the earthly rulers and authorities would seek to oppress this gospel, ultimately they are accountable to one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. His claim should give what will you do with it with verse 18? Will you consider what this claim means now for your life? If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, if that's true, well, then you're a follower of Jesus. That means you don't have authority over your own life. That means you're not your own boss anymore. It means you are not your own, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, that you were bought with a price. So far from this being a, a, a dreadful slavery, this is grateful service. Followers of the Lord Jesus happily give themselves entirely to the one who gave himself entirely for them. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is how he starts. But then we go to the next all statements. Jesus calls his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Now the next two words in verse eight, after verse 18, show the connection between Jesus' claim and Jesus' command. Those two words are, go therefore. So in light of Jesus' universal authority, he sends his disciples on a universal mission. He sends them to make disciples of all nations. So let's just, I just want to break down Jesus' command word by word or phrase by phrase. Just start with the first word, go. Go. Like we said already, as they go, they should go with the confidence in the one who's sending them. But make no mistake, the disciples are to go. Jesus calls them to go beyond Israel. Similarly, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus sends them to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are to go. But throughout her history, the church has lived up to maybe this unfortunate label. I don't know if you guys have heard this before. Uh, it, the church has been called the frozen chosen. 
Have you ever heard of that? Well, now you've heard it today, so. Uh, the frozen chosen, and unless we become immediately discouraged, take heart, we are not alone in living up to this label. In fact, it didn't take long for the very first disciples to live up to the label of the frozen chosen. The disciples did not go out, they stayed in Jerusalem. But beginning with the martyr of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Saul of Tarsus led the effort to ravage the Christians in Jerusalem. So Christians, as a result, scattered to the surrounding regions around Jerusalem, and they started to follow the command. They went. They go. Not the proper phrase. <laughs> so they scattered as a result of persecution, finally following Jesus' call to go. But God uh, bent this evil for good. As the Christians went, Acts 8.4 says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now this reality, it, it made me think of our day now. We, we mourn and we pray for the crisis in Ukraine to end. Um, but yeah, and I noticed that how many millions of people it has displaced. Uh, and many people in Ukraine are Christians. And I wonder, perhaps we can pray that God would bend this evil for good, that the millions of people scattering to different countries in Europe would go about preaching the word, just like the first disciples did in Acts 8. So Jesus tells them, just the first part of this command, is the word, go. There will not be disciples of all nations if the current disciples stay and don't go to them. Jesus doesn't say the nations will come to the disciples. He says the disciples must go to the nations. If you think about your own story this morning, if you are a Christian, it's because somebody followed this call and went to you. Someone answered the call to go. So now, just because we're grateful, because we're joyful, because we see even the urgency of the command, to repent and believe the gospel of Christ, we go. We share the same grace that we have received with others, but it requires that we go to them. And it's really, a, just making it concrete, that's one thing we're trying to do with the Who's Your One campaign. Just one person in our lives who does not know Christ, who we can go to. So go, we go, and then Jesus says, make disciples. It's the next part of his command. Go and make disciples. What is a disciple of Jesus? That's a very churchy word. I don't know if I use the word disciple outside of the church. So what is a disciple of Jesus? Maybe other places in Matthew might help us. Matthew 12, verse 50 says that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and mother and sister. Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus calls Peter blessed because Peter believes the truth about him that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even here, Matthew 28, we're trying to figure out what is a disciple of Jesus. Even the process of making a disciple can show us what a disciple of Jesus is. Disciples of Jesus believe the truth about Jesus. Disciples of Jesus publicly declare their faith in Jesus in baptism. Disciples of Jesus learn and observe what Jesus says. Disciples of Jesus seek to make more disciples of Jesus. We can see it more clearly later on that this command, 
make disciples. It's not limited to Jesus' first disciples. It's for everybody. It's for you and me. I mean, why else would Jesus promise his presence until the end of the age? Surely his first disciples would be gone before then, so it must be for all of Jesus' disciples. I mean, the rest of the New Testament would pick up on that too. First Peter chapter 2 says, God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light uh, so that we would proclaim his excellencies, so that all Christians would be those who make disciples. Brother and sister, what do you think about that? What do you think about that, that the command, Jesus' command here to make disciples is for you? He calls you to do that. Does that intimidate you? Does that maybe discourage you, make you feel overwhelmed? Maybe make you feel a little guilty? Maybe it makes you feel a little tired? Maybe you think like me, you say, Jesus, I get it, that this is important, but I've just got enough going on. I can't add another thing on top of it all. Well, if you respond to the, uh, to the call to make disciples in any way like that, well, let me assure you that you're not alone. Here are maybe five quick applications if you are overwhelmed by the call to make disciples. Just five quick applications. Number one, I would say don't be quick to skirt around a command from the Lord. Don't be too quick to skirt around a command from the Lord. I, I think you and I are, are really good at coming up with reasons why we are exempt from this command to make disciples. We're like Moses at the burning bush. You, you give God a thousand reasons. Like, God, you don't get it. I'm not that eloquent. God, you don't get it. I'm not that smart. Oh, let's, friends, don't be too quick to skirt around it. Let's caution ourselves against that. Uh, number two, if, if the call to make disciples is overwhelming, I would say Focus most on developing a love for Jesus and staying close to him. Focus most on that. Be surprised by Jesus. Be steeped in his word. Draw near to him. Guard what would make your walk with him really stale. With a deep and abiding love for Jesus, I, I, all of your worries and excuses will loom less large. Number three, if, making, if the call to make disciples is overwhelming, I would say incorporate making disciples into your routine that already exists. Usually the harvest of people Jesus calls us to go to is the harvest of people we're already walking with. So think about your kids, your family members, your co-workers. Think about the parents of other kids at the t-ball game. Invite them over for dinner. Ask them good questions. Don't avoid your neighbors like the plague. Make conversation. Be aware of people who are around if the call to make disciples is overwhelming, maybe a quick application number four would be to ask for help. Ask for help. First and foremost, ask for help from the Lord. Pray, God, make me a better disciple maker. But also ask for help from other people. I mean, I'll say this in a moment, but we don't do this command just as individuals. We do this as a church. So talk to somebody here about a person who's on your heart who doesn't know the Lord. Ask them advice, like, hey, what should I say? How do I start a conversation? What should we talk about? Heck, if the person's up for it, bring them here and then ask them what they thought. Ask for help. Number five, if making disciples is overwhelming for you, I would say lean into what you already know. Lean into what you already know. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, I assume you know the truth about Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I assume that you believe the gospel, that you can explain the gospel because you believe the gospel. 
you are a disciple of Jesus, I assume that you read the Word of God. In fact, you're listening to a sermon on the Word of God right now. Just talk about this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, I, I assume that you're actively following him in church. Talk about that. Use what you already know. Maybe you're currently learning. And that goes for everybody, even the loud kids downstairs. You know? <laughs> tell the teachers in the Gospel Project, tell the kids to share what they're learning with their friends. They'd be disciple makers. Matthew 16, Jesus promises to build his church. Matthew 28, this is how he does it. He does it through his church. And if this is the case, then that should change our prayers. It should change how we pray, especially, we shouldn't just pray that God would make us bigger and have more numbers. We should pray that our growth would be overwhelmingly new disciples, not just already existing disciples. That's what we should pray. We should pray that the names of the walls in the lobby would become names that sit in these seats outside the Let's just going through Jesus' command, go and make disciples. And he says, make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. If Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord of all the earth, then all the earth owes Jesus worship. John Piper wrote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, available in our resource center, that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Friends, this, uh, this mission for Jesus to have worship from all the nations of the earth, that mission will be successful. You just look at the final scene in heaven that's described in Revelation, that around Jesus' throne will be those from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. John Piper goes on in his book to reflect more on how Christ is worthy of worship from all nations. He says, there is something about Jesus that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying that Jesus will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. That Jesus' true greatness will be manifest in the breadth of the diversity of those who perceive and cherish his beauty. Jesus' excellence will be shown to be higher and deeper than the parochial preferences that make us happy most of the time. Jesus' appeal will be to the deepest, highest, and largest capacities of the human soul. Thus, the diversity of the source of admiration will testify to his incomparable glory. Jesus, Jesus will show just how great he is, that he will get worship not just from one kind of people, but all kinds of people. So if we are to make disciples of all nations, then we should pray, and we should support, and we should send those who make disciples of Jesus in places where he's not known. If we are to make disciples of all nations, then friends, we should even pray for diversity among us. I mean, think about it. There are people from other nations in Northeast Ohio. Even in our own church, we have those who are either first or second generation immigrants from other countries. May Jesus display through us that he is the Savior, not just of one nation, but Savior of those from all nations. Going in Jesus' commands, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the next step of this command, and the word baptize most naturally means to dip or to immerse in 
and water. And in these instructions about baptism, we see some of the foundations of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons. And looking at these instructions, Jesus tells his disciples, and maybe a little more precisely, to baptize new disciples into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just in. Shows that a person has come into relationship with God. A person has come under the Lordship of Jesus. A person has entered Christ's community. I just want to zoom in on this for a moment on baptism. And as Jesus gives this instruction, he shows that the person who gets baptized is communicating a message to the world. And also the group who does the baptizing communicates a message to the world. So the person who gets baptized, when she gets baptized, she's preaching a message. She basically tells the world about her deepest and truest identity, that I am with Jesus. I believe in him and am united to him. She tells the world when she gets baptized that I am no longer following Jesus in secret. I am following Jesus publicly. We even have Jesus' words in mind that if we deny him before others, that, we will, that he will deny us before the Father. So when she, gets when she gets baptized, she's following the first command that Jesus gives. I've heard one pastor say that getting wet is the easiest command Jesus gives us to follow. It only gets harder from there. But the symbolism of baptism is richer than just getting wet. Romans 6, 1 Peter 3 says that baptism displays what Jesus has done for us. When someone gets baptized, she says, I am, I am united to Jesus by faith, that Jesus' death is my death to sin, and Jesus' life is my new life to him. Jesus has made me clean. And now I follow him. But it's not just the person getting baptized who communicates a message in baptism. It's the group who does the baptizing that also communicates a message. And I say group purposefully. Because is it just individual Christians who have the authority to baptize new disciples? Could you go to your neighbor who happens to be a Christian and has a pool and say, hey neighbor, would you be up for baptizing me today? <laughs> is that what Jesus has in mind? Well, no, this is, this is where we bring in the last two weeks. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Who does Jesus give the keys of the kingdom to? That's when he gives them to the local church. When two or three are gathered. He gave the local church the power to do the same thing that he did with Peter. The local church has the power to recognize those who are true believers in Jesus. So if the local church has authority to recognize true disciples, and if true disciples are, are to be the ones who get baptized, well then it's the local church who should be baptizing people, not just individual Christians. And so just a further reflection upon this, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are the ways that the church uses the keys of the Jesus has given to her. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible ways a church recognizes these are true disciples of Jesus, at least as best as we can tell. Baptism is the initial recognition. It's like the front door of the church. It's the first time a church says about somebody, as best as we can tell, this person believes the truth about Jesus. The Lord's Supper then is like the ongoing recognition. 
is an action of the church. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells them, wait for each other to take this together because you're doing this as a church. It should display your unity. So if baptism is the front door, the Lord's Supper is like a family meal. It only makes sense that you gotta enter the front door to sit down at the family meal. The Lord's Supper then becomes the church. It's the, our ongoing recognition to say as best as we can tell, the people who are partaking are still Christians. That means it makes sense that you need to be recognized that you're part of the family before you eat with the family. So before we take the Lord's Supper, you're, supper, you're hearing you say words like this, that we invite those who are believers in Jesus. We invite believers in Jesus who have publicly declared their faith in Jesus by getting baptized after they believe. believe baptized believers in Jesus who have had their faith in Jesus affirmed by a local church recognized. Baptized believers in Jesus who are members of a church in good standing. That means the credibility of their faith is not in question at the moment. That explains all that we're doing. I think we see the same process or order at the end of Acts chapter 2. Really the beginning of the church where people believe, first believed the gospel and then were baptized and then were added to the church and then took the Lord's Supper together. Because doing this well is, is not just so that we can be semantically correct. Doing this well helps us ensure that each person partaking of the Lord's Supper is an active follower of Christ. That each person taking the Lord's Supper is accountable to and follows Jesus among a local church. And all of this helps ensure that each person that we are, are that is publicly recognized as a Christian is living like one, is being the light that Jesus called us to be. So the call to baptize here, part of these instructions, it reminds us that we don't follow the, the commands to make disciples on our own. We follow it as a church. This is not just our individual mission, this is our mission as a local church. But there is one last part of Jesus' command, just rounding third and heading home here. Verse 20, Jesus says to teach disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. A couple observations about this instruction. First observation is that your discipleship to Jesus doesn't end with your first response in faith to Jesus. Your discipleship to Jesus doesn't even end with the first time you proclaim you have faith in Jesus in baptism. Your discipleship to Jesus continues for the rest of your life. You continue to follow all that he's teaching, all that he's, he has taught. Another observation, teach new disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. You notice we need other disciples of Jesus who can teach us. We need other disciples of Jesus who can teach us. There's a reason why when the church, uh, when the gospel spread in the book of Acts, that churches popped up everywhere. Because, largely because of this, Christians need other Christians to teach them, Christians who are further along. Author Colin Hansen asks, how can you teach everything Jesus commanded to people you barely know and barely see? To do this well, to teach everything Jesus commanded, you need relationships of some depth and endurance. To observe all that Jesus commanded, you need people who can instruct you, People who can teach you the word because they know it well, who can divide it accurately, who you can ask questions to and they can answer. 
To observe all that Jesus commanded, friends, you also need people you can imitate. You need good examples. You need people who you can watch and you can see what it looks like to put all of Jesus' commands in action. So here's just a, like a quick application. Hang out with other people here outside of this place and see them put Jesus' commands in action. Just a couple of weeks ago, example that comes to mind. We were helping uh, Octavius move, uh, and a few of us were together, and um, I observed just how kindly Dan Schaefer treats his daughter. My goodness. Um, and that was instructive to me. I can, I seek to imitate Dan as Dan is imitating Christ. And if that's happening everywhere here uh, with a lot of different people, think of how much stronger a disciples of need other Christians to teach all that Jesus has commanded us. And so we think about our own gatherings, uh, Sundays and Wednesdays. We pray that our, our gatherings give you good instruction, but we also pray that our gatherings give you examples you can imitate. I mean, when we pray together on Sunday mornings, one of our prayers is that you know, this is a, a, pray, a prayer that you can take an example from, that you can imitate. It's an example of how to pray well. When we're together on Wednesdays and we're reading the Word together on Sunday mornings, proclaiming the Word, we're praying that we give you an example to imitate in how to read the Bible well, with Christ as the hero, seeking the original context and the original meaning. We pray that when you see mature Christians responding to other people in conversation on Wednesday or Sunday, we pray that you have examples you can imitate, examples of people who pray for each other, examples of people who ask good questions. We need other Christians to teach us all that Jesus has commanded us. The last observation of the last part of Jesus' commands. He says, teach new disciples all that I have, uh, all that I have taught. Uh, teach them to observe it. You know what's included in one of those commands that Jesus taught? It's this one here. To make disciples. That means a mark of a disciple of Jesus is that he or she makes disciples of Jesus. Now again, just to, to wrap up, if that makes you nervous or overwhelmed, let me point to the final statement of the Gospel according to Matthew. It's the last occurrence of the word all. Jesus tells his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. So and here again is Jesus' tender shepherd-like heart on display. As we go on our mission, there will be times that he knows that he will feel alone. Times like Paul and Silas in the middle of the Philippian prison singing hymns. And here is assurance. The Savior who died for us will never, ever leave us. Here is assurance that, Christian, you are never alone. But I, I want to submit something else to you here just in this last verse. For as precious as this promise is, consider its context. It comes right after Jesus' command to make disciples. So I want to submit this to you. If you want to grow closer to Jesus, if you want a bigger taste that Jesus is in fact good, if you want to experience more of Jesus' presence even more deeply, if you want all of that, friend, then get on the front lines of disciple making. If that's what you, if you want that, get on the front lines of disciple making. Put yourself in situations where you actually have to talk about what you say you believe. Put yourself in situations where you have to stick your neck out and have no choice but to rely on Jesus. 
And if you want to grow, you want to be closer to Jesus, well, friends, get on the front lines of disciple-making and witness Jesus keep his promise. Well, the plane is descending, it's ready to land. Uh, we should end. We should fill out our definition of a local church. Uh, Matthew 28 tells us how we get to work and keep going as a church. And so here's what I hope is a simple and clear definition of a local church. There, there are many like it, and many probably better ones than this, but uh, here's what we got as a culmination of the last three weeks. A local church is a group of individuals who believe the truth about Jesus. They have affirmed each other's faith in Jesus and have agreed to oversee and help each other's faith in Jesus. They do this by gathering together, by continuing to preach the truth about Jesus, by practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and by teaching disciples everything Jesus commanded. Brothers and sisters, what, what's the goal of this? What happens when this works well? Well, the local church is how Jesus ensures that his people shine brightly in a dark world. When this is working well, when there is a group of Christians who are true disciples of Jesus, who are walking in the power of the Spirit in obedience to Christ's commands, well, that is when Jesus makes us the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let's pray for his help. Jesus, we thank you that we serve you, a risen Savior, and that you are in the world today. We praise you again as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we ask, God, that you would keep us together to, to follow Christ together as a local church. That you would make us holy as you are holy. That you would help us represent the name of Jesus well. That you would help us to protect and maintain the place, the group of people where you are especially present, to whom you have tied your name and your reputation. That you would help us to maintain and protect this place, but also, God, that you would help us to expand your borders. That you would move in each one of us, give us a desire, give us a hope and a boldness and a love to make disciples of Jesus. Would that start here, with the example we give to one another, with the instruction that we give to one another, but would it extend outside of this place? We pray this uh, by your grace and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to respond to the Lord's Supper if you haven't. Uh, Picked up elements for the Lord's Supper, you'll find it in the back of the room.